Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. It's a beautiful morning and a beautiful day, and Tony Award winner Caleb Hammonds has things going his way. We talked to one of the producers of the much-acclaimed reboot of Broadway's seminal classic, Oklahoma. It's a story about people coming together in a community to try to build something new, and the inherent violence and othering that happens in those contexts and has happened throughout history. It has all the makings of a modern high school drama. Bullying, a love triangle, opioids, slut-shaming, and pimped-out surreys. While everyone remembers Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma, which features such musical confections as the farmer and the cowman, as a lighthearted romp through the American frontier, it's actually dark as shit. The current Broadway revival of Oklahoma leans into that darkness in a big way, and it was rewarded with a Tony Award for Best Musical last month. We're joined by one of the producers, Caleb Hammonds, who oversaw the original mounting of the production at Bard College. Welcome, Caleb. Hi. Thank you. I should note uh, to our viewers that you and I did live together. We were roommates in college and a little after. Um, So I'm going to give you softballs. Okay. Basically. Great. <laughs> so good, good, good. You were one of the producers <laughs> of this production of Oklahoma. Yes. What does that mean, I say, as somebody <laughs> who also gets asked, what's the producer do all yeah. the time? Well, I, I think it means a, different things in the context of all iterations of this project, which has been something that's cooked for many, many years. Uh, Initially, when Daniel Fish first started developing this concept for Oklahoma, he directed it with students at Bard College in 2007. Like undergraduates. Undergraduates, yes, which was before my time there. But it was a very successful student production, (laughs) as far as student productions go. And he had always wanted to continue developing the work for various reasons of the the rights not being available and timing and interest. Uh, it sat dormant for several years as discussions continued. And in around 2014, uh, we started a conversation with him again about the possibility of continuing to work on the concept as a uh, professional production in the context of our Summerscape Festival. And the timing just worked out perfectly on many levels. Uh, The rights were available. The Rodgers and Hammerstein organization was uh, willing to meet with us and have uh, an in-depth series of conversations around uh, the the concept, uh, what we were visioning for the production and for the music. And we were able to present the first professional iteration uh, in 2015. So in that context, my role was uh, really hands-on in bringing the team together. Uh, we conducted a series of music workshops working on the new orchestrations and arrangements by Daniel Kluger. Uh, and what a... has changed in those orchestrations and arrangements? Sure. So Dan, uh, we knew going into the process that... Um, 
as central to the concept was that the band would be on stage. Very popular Very in popular, musicals these yes, days. Yes, exactly. And Dan's vision, uh, which was built on the initial concepts that Daniel Fish had been developing, was trying to think of what would the what would the instruments be that you would see at a uh, a barn dance or a community gathering space, a party in a rec center in Got the it. context of um, Oklahoma, and probably not like a bassoon exactly, and a harp and exactly. like traditional yes, musical theater yes, orchestras. Yes, so his job was to take the orchestrations as they existed um, and to adapt that for what's now seven a seven-piece band, uh, incorporating steel guitar and banjo and mandolin and uh, those sorts of instruments with a more bluegrass country twist. Got it. But all the songs that we know and love from Oklahoma are still there. Exactly. Just with a yes. different, different yes. instrument. And uh that aspect of the of the piece was the what we worked most closely on with the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization in terms of not changing melodies, not changing harmonies, keeping the integrity of the way the music was initially written and initially orchestrated, but adapting it for a different sound. How protective are organizations like the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization that protect the legacy of deceased playwrights um, and composers? It, it really depends, I think, on um, who is involved, uh, who's still living as part of the, of the legacy of that particular person, uh, and what their priorities are in terms of the legacy of the material. In the case of um, R&H, Ted Chapin, who has overseen that catalog for decades, um, Ted Ted's take was, you know, we have to part of part of the legacy and part of continuing the legacy is figuring out how this material can reach a new generation and reach an expanded audience. So I haven't seen the new production, mm -hmm. but what everybody says is like, oh, it's like the dark Oklahoma sinister. <laughs> and then to refresh myself on the plot of Oklahoma, I just read the Wikipedia page. Yeah, yeah. It is dark as fuck. Like, it I don't really know is. what people, <laughs> I don't know why, why do we have this sort of like rosy idea that it's this like simpler times American frontier musical when actually right. it's it's about violence and sex and turning on outsiders. Yeah, and and I think surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein's material is very dark. I, I don't know what the answer is to that. If it was, if it's a, if it's an about aesthetics or it's about just the way that the musical American musical genre developed in like real life, like how things were staged, the spectacle of it all. But you know, there were times when we were having early read-throughs where we were all like, that's actually in the book. Like, that's actually Was what... there a line that surprised <laughs> you? Or can you point to one of those um, moments? The auction scene. 
I suppose, where it's not necessarily, so this is in the context of uh, a box social that the town is having. All and, these women have and, made have lunches. made these lunches, mm-hmm. and uh, the lunches are auctioned off, and all the men uh, bid on their uh, lunch hampers. And when you really just read the lines... There, there's a lot there that gives you the creeps. <laughs> really. Like, are you talking about um, like Judd tries to buy Lori's box and people like try to outbid him? Yes, because- exactly. And so it's like you, you know, you're you're putting you're putting women on auction essentially, right. and um, there are these just innuendos and um, these these uh, undercurrents of of uh, repression, but also of the way that the auction unfolds that becomes the catalyst for this community coming together to basically decide that the only way that they're going to rid themselves of this outsider is to all get on the same page about no one wants him there, so it's up to us to get him out. And I think that, you know, Audiences have said often, like, oh, how much did you change? How much did you rewrite? Nothing. It's the book as written. It is the lyrics as written. And when people, a lot of times in the press, the production gets referred to as revisionist, which I I take... uh, a lot of uh, pause with because I we haven't revised anything. In my opinion, we're just doing we're just doing the show. Now, one of the things that people say um, was tweaked or changed a little bit, and I believe this changed between the Bard or the Saint Anne mounting mm-hmm. and the Broadway mounting is the end. And yes. again, haven't seen it, yes. but I understand <laughs> that maybe there was less ambiguity than there is in the current mm-hmm. iteration. And I think this is potentially where the quote unquote revisionist uh, moniker comes in. The the action is the same. The intentionality of the action is what has been tweaked and modified. Um, and a lot of that, I guess, spoiler alert. Yeah, we're, we can just say it. <laughs> Judd Fry dies. Judd Fry dies. He gets stabbed. Um, and... Uh, I think that there are a lot, there's also a lot of ambiguity around, um, so you have two aspects of this piece that are, I think, open to the most interpretation, that being the famous dream ballet, and that being, and the ending, which are portions that are not necessarily um, scripted out in a way that you're following what the text is telling you to follow in such a way that you're depending a lot on what's happened in the past, what's iconic, the dream ballet that Agnes DeMille created mm-hmm. for the Broadway production in the film. But actually in the book, like, what does it say for the dream ballet sequence? Like, Laurie dances? No, there's a written narrative, uh-huh. which is based on Agnes DeMille's choreography and uh-huh. the way that that narrative played out, which is, I think, still 
in some ways represented in the more um, the more abstract version of the dream ballet that exists in this production, um, but also is open to interpretation a little bit around like what were the author's intentions and who is the author? Was the author Agnes DeBille? Was the author Rodgers and Hammerstein? And the same for the ending, which is traditionally, I mean, the only straight up difference as far, I think, as the actual spoken lines are uh, goes is that the the weapon in the altercation is a gun, not a knife. Mm. And in the in what you would see if you watched the movie or if you saw we'll call a traditional production of Oklahoma, is um a skirmish happens between Judd and Curly and there's uh, a lot more ambiguity around what actually happens when Judd, quote-unquote, falls on his knife. In this production, Judd shows up at the wedding of Lori and Curly with a gift, uh, which is, in our case, a gun, in other cases, a knife. And rather than there being an altercation, Judd places the gun in Curly's hand, uh, cocks the the I don't know what you call that on a gun the, the trigger hammer? The, yeah, hammer, the hammer uh-huh. and sort of positions Curly's hand in a way that he's pointing the gun directly at him and, whoa uh, I just got so, shivers yeah. so it's it's more of a statement on what the community turning against this outsider has like driven him to in some ways. Right. It's it's both, I think, in some ways, Judd taking his destiny into his own hands and the community seeing play out before them the narrative that they are all collectively supposed to agree on that happened. Mm-hmm. Well, this makes me ask, why Oklahoma? Why now? Like, what, what, uh, what about these times, these modern times, um, made made the director Daniel Fish want to tell this story about a community turning against an outsider? It's a story about people coming together uh, in a community to try to build something new, and the inherent violence and othering that happens in those contexts and has happened throughout history and the complacency of everyone in that Mm -hmm. without uh, sometimes without even realizing what's happening. But um, there's a problem and we need to solve it and we do whatever we need to do for the quote unquote betterment of the community. And in the concept of of the piece, which has always been in the round uh, or some version of the round and has always, uh, from a design point of view, uh, been 
developed in a way that the entire audience is in the same room as the actors, as the musicians. There's no facade of a of a fourth wall or that there's any separation between the audience and the performers, that everyone is collectively a part of this story and therefore also implicated in what ultimately happens in the end. Mm-hmm. And um, I think on a baseline, there was there was that interest in a theatrical context of um, putting the audience in that kind of position and particularly in that kind of position within material that a lot of people are going to come into thinking that they know and maybe realizing that they don't know as well as they thought that they did. That makes me curious. Has there been any sort of um, unexpected audience interaction? Like, I can imagine feeling complicit in this as a member of that community. Like, has has anyone been like, no, stop? Um, I don't know that there's ever been anything that explicit, but I, my favorite part of the show Especially because wherever you're sitting, you can see everyone else. And so you, as an audience member, you are always conscious of the fact that you can see everyone else and that they can see you uh, and that the actors can see you. And when uh, at the the end of uh, after Judd has has died, uh, has been killed and um the trial the the makeshift trial happens and they're sending Lori and Curly off to their honeymoon everyone breaks into singing Oklahoma again and when you're watching this from the audience and you're looking at other people around you it's fascinating to see this mix of people who just have these stunned, horrified looks on their face by what has just happened. And then other people who are just, you know, clapping along, (laughs) breaking into song and, you know, singing along. And, um, and even when they, there are even people who then when they start that and notice, start to slowly notice that that's also this moment where in a way, the actors on stage are sort of shedding that moment narratively and just having their own reactions to what just happened as a almost as a release of the emotions that have all just played out before us. So watching audience members' faces start to also recognize that the actors on stage are not super happy and about breaking into uh, this song about statehood and nationalist pride. Right, (laughs) right. So I want to ask you a little bit about casting. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, Oklahoma, pretty white show, all white cast, maybe with the exception of the um, foreign peddler character, (laughs) who's honestly also probably played by a white guy, maybe in brown face. Yeah. your production is not the only production to cast, to make some creative mm-hmm. casting choices. There was the Oregon Shakespeare Festival version mm-hmm. um, where the lead characters were homosexuals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Do you think that the show like lends itself? Is there something about the show that makes people want to like play with the casting like inherently? Or how did you approach casting? Because uh, Lori is a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Ado, Ado Annie's in a wheelchair. Talk to me a little bit about your, your thought behind that. We didn't necessarily go into casting thinking, oh, this character needs to be this race or this character needs to be um, X, Y, or Z, but more so that if we're trying to represent a community on stage, then we want to do our best for that to feel like a representation of uh, of a community, in a, of a contemporary community. And, and within the context of a narrative that is about otherness and about the outsider, that we wanted to do it in a way that didn't make it feel like, um, you know, ultimately the, end, the, the the outsider is the creepy straight white dude. <laughs> um, this sort of like incel yeah, yeah, character, yeah, right? Exactly. And so it wasn't. It wasn't. They weren't choices that were in any way made because of the narrative, but more just because of the overall concept and what we were trying to create the feeling that we were trying to create on stage and judd fry the creepy white mm-hmm. incel he actually was in the very original production right he as was. an undergraduate yes. yes is there anyone else in the cast who originated their roles no he's the he's the only one who has really stuck w- with the production and it, you know, I think when when these uh, students did the show as undergrads in 2007, some of them have, many of them have gone on to other fields or are not acting anymore. But um, Patrick uh, did when after he graduated from Bard, he went to graduate school and uh, was a working actor. And I think also that his casting, his original casting as Judd in 2007 was uh, in some ways became a pivotal piece to the concept itself Mm. um, that Judd has traditionally been cast as a a brute. uh, Hyper-masculine. The hyper-masculine brute. And um, not that Patrick... Isn't that, but um, but that he was, he's not the person who you would traditionally call in to see for the, the role of Judd Fry. And um, that made him interesting to us. And when we were casting the 2015 production, um, Daniel Fish, the director, said, we have to see Patrick. Um, and... As soon as we all saw him in the room, we it was just one big collective. Yes, absolutely, wow. this has to happen. And um, so it's been a very long journey for him. Indeed, but yes, he can't get yeah, away from Judd Fry. He can't. Judd Fry will never he, die. He always jokes about how just when he thinks he can cut his hair or wash it, <laughs> um, too bad. This production Patrick. pops up again. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have any inside knowledge of this, but is the old Weeping Willow actually laughing at me? Um, probably. Okay. Probably. All right. Well, yeah, that's hurtful. I think so. Um, so 
In addition to uh, <laughs> winning a Tony Award, congratulations Thank for this. You. you have been busy at the Fisher Center um, mounting new productions. And Daniel Fish yes. actually has a new show yes. that is up right now. It just got a it's rave true. in the Times. So tell me a little bit about Aquanetta. Sure. So this was a piece that um, initially was presented in January of 2018 here in the city um, as part of the Prototype Festival, which is a festival of new opera and new music performance that uh, is presented annually by the Here Art Center and Beth Morrison projects. And uh, it was it had five performances in the city in January. Uh, got a very glowing review uh, in the music section of, of the New York Times Arts and was just one of those pieces that we felt had to happen again and needed, uh, needed to have a longer run. The piece itself uh, is... Uh, is an opera uh, written by uh, Michael Gordon, who's a composer, uh, co-founder of Bang on a Can, and uh, a librettist, Deborah Artman, who he works with often. They were initially inspired to write the piece uh, after reading a obituary in the New York Times for uh, a woman named Aquanetta who was a B-movie horror star in uh, the 1940s uh, in Hollywood. And, and she was she was a woman of color who often played like exoticized roles. Yes. Right? So what was the most fascinating about her is that um, she was a woman of color, but the uh, exact nature of her background and her entire history were really unknown and um, were created and sculpted by uh, the Hollywood machine in in uh, a significant way. She was by turns Venezuelan or Native yes. American yes. or who knows. Yes, or, yeah. or what. Right. She was at that point in time exotic. And so this is an opera yes. about her roughly and it incorporates images and projections um, as well as live performance. Yes, so it is entirely live, but you're watching a movie being made and that's all like that's okay. all I will say. Well, about people it. can go see it now. Yes, it's um, playing uh, through this weekend through okay. the 21st of July. I'm not sure when this will air, so <laughs> hopefully you you'll get a it, chance so to see sorry, it. So sorry, but maybe um, it'll transfer somewhere. But Who knows? the yes, and also the uh, the album of the piece was just released, okay. so it's also uh, available that you can listen to. And of course, Oklahoma is still running Oklahoma's on Broadway. Still running uh, at least through January, and uh, a national tour is in the works for the fall of 2020. Tremendous. Yeah. Uh, well, Caleb. Thank you so much for joining me Thank today. Thank you Congrats for having again me. again on your Tony. I was hoping you would bring it, but... Well, I don't have it oh, yet. Oh, it's getting engraved. It takes six to eight weeks. What? I know. Expedite that shit. I know. You have media appearances <laughs> to make. All right. Thanks, Caleb. Thank you. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to send me a video of your best dream ballet. Also, please review 112BK on iTunes and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.
What Went To BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 